Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we'll be uh, beginning our end of our look at Harry Peter Stokes' works with an uh, investigation, a review, a five-part review. Uh, is that the right name for it? I've always called them reviews, but they're, they're more just uh, reflections on and discussions of, but uh, of Old Town Folks. That's the book we're going to look at, Old Town Folks. Uh, this was published in 1969, I want to say. So it's published significantly after the Civil War, 1969. So this is about the time that I think Little Women was published, isn't it? Uh, let me find out. Little Women, yeah, 1968, 1969. So around the same time as, as Little Women was published. Um, it doesn't have the same, quite the same feel, but one thing they have in common is that they're both kind of coming-of-age stories, of people and they and they explore people growing up within certain types of, of communities, particularly New England communities at this time. So it's um it's a pretty interesting novel. It's it's almost like a it's almost modernist in its way of telling a story because we actually just get a lot of little vignettes, at least we do in the first part. I think my sense is it comes together a little bit more narratively. Um, after the first quarter of the book or so. But the first half, it's basically we get these little snapshots of, of life, right? And I almost thought for a while, are we just going to get like each chapter is about one of the old town folks? And then they kind of string together and it doesn't really work out that way. But that, you almost get that at times where you feel like, oh, this chapter is going to be about this one guy in a town. Uh, maybe like Pastures of Heaven by Steinbeck, you get that feeling where it's like a bunch of short stories that feed together into telling the story of a town. Um, unfortunately, I don't think like Stowe's quite able to do that because we do end up falling back into a narrative. And the narrative is about uh, our narrator, Horace Holyoke, and his relationship with uh, his childhood friends, uh, Tina and Harry Percival, who are orphans. Now, they both lost fathers. All, all three of these young people have lost their father early in their life. And our Horace goes to basically live with his grandmother, uh, Eglatine, Eglatine, Tina. I'll just call her Tina from now on. And Harry uh, be basically becomes sort of indentured servants of, of a brother and sister group. Um, and, and so through this, we get kind of our window into different like parenting styles. It's obviously something that Stowe's very interested in. It came up a lot in... Minister's wooing, and it came up even more actually in Uncle Tom's Cabin. So that's something very much on our mind: is just how we raise our kids, and on what values do we raise our kids with. Um, now, our preface is not written by Harry Beecher Stowe. Our preface to this novel is actually written by Horace Holyoke, our, our narrator. And so we can't quite say this is Stowe's intention, but Holyoke's intention is given here. He says. I have an object in this book more than the mere telling of a story, and you can always judge a book better if you compare it with the author's object. My object is to interpret the world, the New England life and character in that particular time of its history, which may be called the seminal period. I would endeavor to show you New England in its seedbed before the hot suns of modern progress had developed its sprouting germs into the great trees of today. So if we place Horace Holyoke 
as a grown person writing this reflections in, in say it's 1969 and we subtract 40 years, we're talking about like very similar to the time period of the ministers of wooing. But anyways, I, I get the sense the the purpose here is similar to a minister's wooing, but while that's a very focused story of a young woman and her love interest and his returning and her the love triangle and all that stuff, this is a much more sprawling story that gives us the whole picture of the town. So I think this is actually a more effective, I get the sense this is a more effective novel at kind of, of nostalgia. I mean, this is boomer-style nostalgia, isn't it? It's... It's, he literally calls it the seedbed. Like he, he's basically calling it the good old days before modernity, before progress came about, which is a bit weird because this is the world with slavery and Stowe's obviously against it. I, I find it, the nostalgia here, I find a little bit odd from Stowe, who is a progressive intellectual and in that she's against slavery. Um, so I don't quite know what to make of that now. I'm just going to put a pin in that idea. Uh, maybe it's not that contradictory in a way because she's critiquing. She wouldn't like be nostalgic for Southern pre-Civil War South, but maybe pre-Civil War New England. But even that had some, like you saw in the Minister's Wooing, some pretty nasty features like involvement in the slave trade and all that. But there's still something where she's not totally comfortable with modernity, I think, and she wants to kind of gravitate back to this, these periods of time. Um, so our setting is revealed in chapter one. And the chapter one's called Old Town and the Minister. And right away, this, this is why I thought, are we just gonna get vignettes of different people that are gonna piece together into a story, like an anthology series of interconnected tales? That would have been awesome. I, I would have been totally down for that. Um, but we don't quite get that, but it starts out feeling that way because our first chapter is about um, a relatively minor character, but if you think about the nature of New England society, he's significant. It's Reverend uh, Lorthrop is his name. Um, and we're reminded that Puritan New England communities were little theocracies, and that's how they were by intention. And yet, while that's changed with the American Revolution and the development of colonial societies, at the heart, the minister and his wife are still crucial figures. Uh, we also learned that Old Town uh, was once an Indian town that sort of got supplanted. So genocide and settler colonialism is kind of in the backdrop of, of the story, for better or for worse. I think it's an interesting aspect of, the, of this story is she does explore the experiences of Native people in these communities. Largely, though, this chapter is about the marriage between Lothrop and a woman named uh, uh, Dorothea, or no, sorry, yeah, Dorothea Dixwell. Um, they... They end up marrying and establishing that, that, that kind of, that lordship almost, that spiritual lordship of the New England town, which is that, that the minister and his wife. Again, I'm reminded of how important that relationship was conceived to be in the context of the minister's wooing, which is why, uh, you know, Mary's mother so much wanted her to, to marry the minister. Because that would basically make you royalty in the, in the town and give you a lot of authority and, and, and you know, political capital and everything else, financial resources and security, all that good stuff that you want in a, in a, in a mate, I suppose. Um, chapter two explores, and I'm going to kind of zip through these because um, they are what they are. They're, they're little, they are sort of vignettes. Um, 
So the first six all are like Horace Holyoke's point of view uh, and his family and his background. So the second chapter is called My Father, and we learn a lot about um, Holyoke's father. Basically that he's a typical New England kind of father, stoic, sacrifices his, all his pleasures, earthly pleasures and happiness for marriage, doing his duty, work and marriage is the center of his life. Um, and then, and then we, when we meet him, we hear that that's his life. And instead of getting his just rewards in retirement, peace and security, no, he gets sick and dies while Holyoke is still a child. I think he's like 10 or 11 or something. He has an illness. And then we see him just reflecting on and thinking about the afterlife and what he's going to face. Uh, facing the afterlife is a big theme of this particular chapter. Uh, literally the last thing we hear from his father he doesn't quite die here. We hear about him dying later in the story. But um, the last lines of the chapter are, Father, said I earnestly, where are you going? Where, he said, looking at me with his clear, mournful eyes. God knows, my son, I do not. It ought to be enough for me that God does know. Uh, end quote. Great uh, reminder that we're in a Puritan world here, um, a Calvinist world. Then we find out where, what's going to happen to him. Uh, he basically is going to end up living with his, with his grandmother. Um, and that's where he goes. And we learned a lot more about the local Indians here. Again, I think that's an interesting aspect. Uh, I, I almost want to read this whole thing, but it, it's kind of lengthy, but we'll, we'll see. Um, it's a wonderful passage um, about the Indians who once had lived in this village that, that were supplanted and di displaced by, by the whites of Old Town. Quote, Old Town had in many respects a peculiar sort of society. The Indian tribe that once had been settled in its vicinity had left upon its place the tradition of a sort of wandering gypsy trampling life so that there were in the town an unusual number of that roving uncertain class of people who are always falling into want, needing to be helped, hanging like the tattered fringe on the thrifty and well-petticoats of New England society. The traditions of tenderness, pity, and indulgence which the Apostle Eliot had interwrought into the people of his day in regard to the Indians had descended through all the families and given to that roving people certain established rights in every household, which in those days no one thought of disowning. The wandering Indian was never denied a good meal, a seat at the kitchen table, a mug of cider, and a bed in the barn. My grandfather, out of his ample apple orchard, always made one hogshead of cider, which was called the Indian hogshead, and which was always to be on tap for them. And my grandmother not only gave them food, but more than once would provide them with blankets and allow them to lie down and sleep by the great kitchen fire. In those days, New England was such a well-watched and schooled and catechism community and so innocent in the general tone of its society that in the rural villages, no one ever locked the house doors at night. I've lain awake many a night hearing the notes of the whippoorwills and the frogs and listening to the sightings of the breeze as it came through the great wide open front door of the house and swept up the stairwell. Nobody ever thought of being afraid of the tramper who might be left asleep on the kitchen floor would rouse up the night and rob the house. In fact, the poor vagrants were themselves totally innocent, not being guilty of very many dark sins than the occasional drunkenness and habitual unthrift. They were simple, silly, jolly sort of rovers partly Indian and partly whites who had fallen into Indian habits and who sold stories and made baskets and drank cider and raised puppies of which they carried a supply in their wanderings and from which came forth in due time an ample supply of those yellow dogs of old 
one of whom was standing member of every well-regulated New England family, end quote. So th th first of all, the whole novel's written this way with long, sprawling asides into the life, which makes it worth spending time on. I actually feel bad. I kind of have to zip around a little bit and speed read certain sections because it is so rich this way. But a few of these passages will get you an idea of what you're kind of dealing with in, this, in, the, in the, the richness of it and just the wonderful prose here. And then the fact that she's so aware of how Indian and white societies did intermesh and how the Indians weren't just kicked out, that they became part of that society, displaced from their homes, from their land, but become wandering members of the community. And those habits filter into the whites, right? They, you know, they, the line here, some half Indian, half white or whatever, that's cultural and maybe racial. It might be more than racial. It might actually be a kind of a cultural interconnectedness of these, of these two people. And the rovingness, the wanderingness, infects the Puritans who are anything but intended to be wanderers. Obviously, they're wandering from England to go to America, but their intention in America is to be settled, is to be part of American culture. And, but these are the people around him growing up and around his grandmother. And so there's going to be a contrast in this whole book between mobility and, th and adventure and journeying out and a little bit of shiftlessness. But as she just says, it's not that they're bad people. It's just it's like a different almost culture or identity contrasted with the hard work, like staticness of, of Holyoke's father who, who never wants to... Uh, leave his his home. It's, it, actually, reading this, it's, it's a shame no one reads this book, or as far as I can tell, not many people read it. There is an audio book in LibriVox, which I listen to some of it, but um, but it's it, their LibriVox narrations are sometimes really great. This one's not bad. I just, the words themselves work so much better on their own, I think. Now, tied to that chapter is The Village Do Nothing, Chapter 4, which is about a man named Sam um, Lawson, who is just that. He's The Village Do Nothing. Every New England village, she writes, even if you only think of it, must have its do-nothings as regularly as it has its schoolhouse or meeting house. Nature is always wide awake in the matter of compensation. Work, thrift, and industry are such an incessant scene power in Yankee life that society would burn itself out with intense friction where they're not interposed here and there, lubricating power of a deciding do-nothing. A man who wouldn't be hurried, who wouldn't work, will take his case his own way in spite of the whole protest of his neighborhood to the contrary, end quote. Now, I don't know if that's Stowe or Holyoke or both, but Stowe here, let's take it as her point of view. It's, it's a brilliantly mature look at work. It's like the Puritan work ethic does not make the richest society. It makes a relatively boring society. If everyone is Holyoke's father, who's going to want to live in that world, right? You want to live in a world with people like Sam Lawson, who is a bit of a grifter. He uh, talks a good game. He, he knows how to avoid work. He's very hardworking at his sloth. It's, he's a fascinating figure, actually. I, I think this chapter is really fun to read. And, and even his language is in dialect. The way he speaks is more in like almost an African-American style dialect. So um, Stowe has somewhat of an ear for this. We saw that in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, and where different, like lower class characters spoke in a more vulgar way. Uh, Sam does too. Um, and it, it seems with, when you get to the lower classes, 
like the racial line is no longer definable by language because they're sharing the same language. That's the and and yeah, there's a vulgarity to it, and a, and a and by that I don't mean like necessarily bad, but a, like a like a lacking the the rules of of grammar, right? There's like that that uneducated like vernacular language, um, which is great. We need more of that. We we we, we, te we teach too much formal English, not enough of this stuff. Um, He's also got a very important role in society, we're told by our author. Um, and he's very skilled. Sam was endowed with no end of idle accomplishments. His indol indolence was precisely of a turn that enjoyed the excitement of an occasional odd bit of work with which he had clearly shown no concern and with no tendency towards his own support of that is family. Something so far of his line of practical utility as to be in a manner an artistic labor would awaken all his energies of his soul. His shop was a perfect infirmity for decayed articles of virtue from all the houses for miles along, all around. He, he's kind of like a scavenger of sorts, but he's, you know, playing a role in society. Everyone has a role in this culture. So, so liberal, really amazingly liberal in her view here. You know, it's not puritanical moralism, which we felt kind of strangled with in the minister's wooing a little bit too much. But here, by looking at the whole culture, she's sort of unleashed here, and it's, it's kind of amazing. I, I really do enjoy it. Then we get to chapter five, the old meeting house, which is a very, very long chapter looking at literally the, the old meeting house, the old meeting house, and a lot on the social network of, of the community. Um, and how important the old meeting house, the old church house, right, that's what that means, was to uh, the social network, and, and not just for whites. Quote, besides our Indian population, we had a few Negroes, and a side gallery was appropriated to them. Prominent there was a stately form of old Boston Fuda, an African prince who had been stolen from the coast of Guinea in early youth and sold in Boston at some period of antiquity, whereto the memory of a man runneth not. All the old town people and their fathers and grandfathers remembered old Boston just as he had existed, neither old nor younger. He was of a majestic stature, slender and proudly erect, and perfectly graceful in every movement, his woolly hair as white as the driven snow. He was a servant to General Hall in the Revolutionary War, on and on. Uh, just, again, another aside, like how she... She, I, I got the feeling, are we going to get like something about every single person who lives in old town before this novel's done? I think we might, and that's just fine. I'm just, I, I, I'll dig it. It's a long novel, 400 pages, so why not spend the time learning about all these people and their histories and how they fit into this intricate social web? I don't know where it's going to go. I have no clue where this novel's going to go, to be honest. But um, I, think that, I think I glanced at the Wikipedia for this one, but that's about it. Um, next, we have Firelight Talks in My Mama's Grandmother's Kitchen. That's Chapter 7. Uh, just like we had with the meeting house, we get a long description of grandmother's kitchen, which as a young boy, he probably spends a lot of time in and interacting with. But again, this is all about society. And we get the long descriptions that he's overhearing as a, young, as, as, uh, as a boy uh, between the different uh, members of society. Grandma's kitchen becomes a public forum, almost. And even he writes... Holyoke writes, the, the, the Stowe writes via Holyoke, 
So passed an evening in my grandmother's kitchen where religion, theology, politics, and gossip of the day and the legends of the supernatural all conspired to weave a fabric of thought, quaint and various. Intense earnestness, a solemn undertone of deep mournful awe was overlaid with quaint traceries of humor, strange and weird in their effect. I was one of those children who are all ear, dreamy listeners who brood over all they hear without daring to speak of it. And in this evening's conversation, I have heard enough to keep my eyes broad open long after my mother had laid me to bed. The haunted house and its vague wonders filled my mind. And I determined to question Sam Lawton Lawson yet more about it. End quote. Now the haunted house will come back later in the story, but um, a great ending for essentially what's the first part of, of the book. I could stop here, but I do want to fill out my 100-page quota here. Um, there's no reason not to. And that's, we have two kind of joined chapters. Old Caleb, old, sorry, Old Crab Smith. Caleb Smith is his name. Um, but he goes by Old Crab Smith. And his sister, Asphyxia Smith. Miss Asphyxia's cha name, chapter 8. Now, the name Asphyxia, obviously, you get the sense of strangulation, of loss of breath. Um, old Crab Smith, I... Um, he, we're also told that that name comes from his nature. Quote, uh, the house belonged to a man named Caleb Smith, whose character has been the cause the name he bore to degenerate into another, which was held to be descriptive of his nature, namely Crab. He was one of those sour, coarse, gnarly natures that now and then are met in New England, which like naughty cider apples present a compound of hardness, sourness, and bitterness. So uh, who are these two people? Well, they are the asphyxia is the older sister of Caleb Smith. And they're going to take in Harry and Tina, who just, we learned, have lost their father. And actually, uh, Holyoke, the narrator, stops and says, I'm done talking about myself for now. I'm going to talk about the people whose lives intertwine with mine eventually. I'm going to talk about my friends. And we learn about their background that's similar in a way. While Holyoke is living with his grandmother after his, fa his, his father died, Tina and Harry are going to be apprenticed to the Smiths, the Smith um, brother and sister duo. And that's going to be their cross to bear. We, we're told right away that these are not the finest people, um, but they have to go there to survive. The mother can't raise them, can't afford them on her own. Um, so they are basically passed off on these people. And we're going to learn more about both of them and uh, Harry's Harvey, Harry's experience, and uh, Tina's experience with the uh, people um, they're apprenticed to. So I'll just, I won't say much more about the chapters because we will say more about these characters as we go on. But at this point in the story, 100 pages in, 20% into the novel, we kind of have quite a few of our pieces in play, I guess. Uh, I have no idea where this novel is going to go, though, um, beyond a few chapters after this. So I know there's going to be a lot of, about child-rearing and different models of child-rearing reflected by these different step-parent relationships, foster-parent relationships that have been established. Step-parent's the wrong word. Foster-parent relationships. So I think that's going to be the heart of what we're going to talk about in the next episode. But anyways, um, I'll leave it at that. This is a good one. This, uh, you know, I actually read a big portion of this twice. I went back because I, I realized I was kind of missing some of the beauty in the language with, with some of the parts I skimmed. So I went back and looked at them again. Really, really rich stuff. I, I think it's worth checking out. More so than Ministers of Wooing. I, I think I like that novel, but 
this one seems to be like a little hidden gem. Um, I've never heard of it before a couple weeks ago. So um, I don't know. I'm sure American lit experts and some other aficionados of 19th century lit know about it, but it's, it's not what I've ever heard about. So it's new to me. Maybe it's probably going to be new to you too. So uh, pick it up if you have a chance. I think it's worth at least glancing at. So anyways, that's going to be it for now. Let me know what you think of all this, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>